So uh, today, uh, we come to the second in our series on the Psalms, uh, and I've chosen in these four uh, messages, these four Sundays, to have a, a different kind of psalm which will lend a different sort of tone and theme to each service. So last week there was a wisdom psalm, the first psalm, uh, the two ways, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Today it's a psalm of praise, and that's pretty obvious, I think, to most of us that uh, many of the psalms uh, focus on praise for God. Uh, and so um, we praise God for who he is, first of all, for his character and his attributes, his wisdom, power, sovereignty, and holiness. Those are all part of God's character. For what he has done, is doing, and will do, his mighty acts of creation, providence. He still governs the world that he created, salvation, redemption, of course, and finally, judgment, justice, the, the end of all things, when all will be well, and all will be exceedingly well. So, um, psalms of praise. And uh, if you, as I say, they run throughout the scriptures, but the end of the book of Psalms kind of results in a, a cacophony of praise. The last five psalms, uh, actually, Psalm 145 too, but 146 through 50, the last of the five, each begins and ends the same way. Praise the Lord, and it ends. Praise the Lord, and in between, everything is poured out in praise of God. The whole creation, the people of God, um, they're, they're dancing, they're singing, they're playing instruments. Uh, the sun and the mountains and the hail and the snow and, and everything in between is called out by the psalmist in praise of God. And then in Psalm 147, Jerusalem is mentioned specifically. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. And so we want today to focus specifically on Jerusalem and its role in God's plan uh, as the city of God. Let's listen to Psalm 87 as Megan reads. This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia too, and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in it for the Most High himself will establish it. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's the singers and dancers too. <laughs> they come in at the end. 
I'd like to talk to you this morning a little bit, uh, by way of introduction, about reading scripture with the church fathers, the earliest centuries of church history. And supremely, uh, we're going to talk this morning about St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, either way, uh, and his take on the city of God. But in the early church, and actually this is found, as I think we'll see, in the New Testament itself and the Old Testament throughout Scripture, there was a literal way of reading the text, and that always, you always started with that. But then there are what they called uh, spiritual readings of the text. And the spiritual readings could further be subdivided into things like metaphor or symbolism or allegory. And then there was a reading, I'll spare you the technical term, but I'll call it personal application, reading yourself into the, into the text and seeing how it applies to us as followers of Jesus, as Christians. And finally, there is a kind of uh, future reading or uh, ultimate reading, uh, pointing to the last things, the new creation, the great consummation of all things in the plan of God. Uh, at the return of Christ and the end of time and the new creation, the recreation of the universe. So those are uh, the basic approaches that the uh, church fathers often had to the text. Sometimes it could lead them astray, but in other instances, it was what the text itself wanted uh, us to do. It's how the text wanted to be read. So uh, I want to take the example of Jerusalem from Psalm 87, and show how in Scripture this is understood in all these different ways. Jerusalem or Zion, Zion a synonym for Jerusalem. Jerusalem uh, was built on Zion. Zion was the hill where the uh, original fortress stood, uh, and so these terms are interchangeable uh, for, as it's called here, the city of God as well. So first, the literal meaning of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place in Israel, right? It, you can point to it on the map. Uh, it's a physical city. It's the city that David uh, initially conquered from the Jebusites, the Canaanite tribe that was occupying Zion. And the, that story is told in 1 Samuel. You can read it. And he kind of made it his own, and he brought eventually the ark there, and then his son Solomon built the temple there, and so it became identified with the God of Israel, the city of God, Jerusalem. So Psalm 137, a psalm of exile, uh, one of the most plaintive of all psalms, the psalmist says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. Oh man, uh, he's in exile, the city's been destroyed. And he's just filled with sadness as he thinks back uh, to the beauty of that place, sort of nostalgic. Some of us may feel that way about the America of our childhood, I don't know, or the community we grew up in. It's all changed. It's all... Oh, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget its cunning. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. So the literal. But then there's a metaphorical meaning for Jerusalem, uh, beginning already in the Old Testament, it stands for the people of God. 
not the place now, but the people, the whole people of God, Zion. And to me, one of the most moving passages in all of the Old Testament comes in Isaiah 49, which is a dialogue between God and his people. So God says, Zion, I love you, you know, you're great. But there, again, it's set in the exile. And Zion replies, um, what do you mean, <laughs> in effect? What do you mean you love us? Look at where we are. You've forgotten us. City's destroyed. We're living in Babylon. As far as we know, we have no future. You've forgotten us. And this is how God replies. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. What a shocking, shocking image. What, God has hands? God has scarified his hands? Scarified? Your walls are continually... What he's actually written on his hands is a map of the city, a plan of the city. The city is his people. And they are his forever, indelibly engraved on his hands. Then the personal meaning. Now we come to the New Testament. What does this mean for us? Jerusalem is our mother, says the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. He uses an allegory. It's one of the more obscure passages in Paul's letters, but in Galatians 4, he allegorically treats Hagar and Sarah and their children, Ishmael and Isaac, and he says in the midst of this, we belong to the free. Jerusalem, that is above, the spiritual Jerusalem is our mother. We who trust in Christ. We who are saved by grace through faith in him. We're, we're the people of God. It's the church. It's you and me. We belong to Jerusalem. Hebrews 12 makes the same point uh, in, a, in another remarkable passage. Um, Hebrews, as the name implies, was addressed, most scholars think, to Jewish Christians. We're not sure who wrote it, uh, but it was specifically written to encourage Jewish Christians who were in danger of falling away from Christ and, and reverting to their old ancestral faith because things were starting to get tough for Christians. Interestingly, in the first century, as uh, Rome increasingly came to recognize these Christians as a threat because they were an international body, voluntarily, anyone and everyone was welcome. Whereas Judaism was an ethnic religion and that was okay with the Romans as long as it was limited to Jews. So they could be safe if they identified as Jews, but if they identified as Christians, look out, here comes trouble. And the writer to the Hebrews, the, the gist of the whole letter of Hebrews is hang in there. Stand firm, because this is the real deal. This is the way now to God. It's Christ who's the final 
revelation of the Father. It's Christ who's the better high priest, who once for all has paid for our sins with his blood, who's opened the way to us. And if you turn back, if you fall away, there's no future for you. For we have come, says the writer, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So stick with it. <laughs> We're part of the heavenly Jerusalem. And then finally, uh, Jerusalem refers to God's future, God's kingdom, the new Jerusalem come down from heaven like a bride at the end of Revelation uh, in, verse, in chapter 21 and in chapter 22, these, these wonderful words that speak about our future when it shall ultimately come to, come to earth. It's not that we trash the earth and throw it away uh, no, God is going to recreate it. It's part of the new Jerusalem. It's part of the city of God. And that's the future to which we look forward. So, we're reading the scriptures with the fathers and actually with the rest of, the, of scripture. And we turn back to Psalm 87 and ask, uh, if that's what is meant by Jerusalem, it's the people of God, it's us, the church, it's God's future, what is said about the city specifically here? And three things uh, the psalmist singles out to emphasize. First, he talks about how much God loves the city. On the holy mount it stands, the city he founded, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jerusalem. God loves you. God loves us. God loves his people. It is his supreme love. But it's tough love. And that's made clear uh, throughout the prophets in the Old Testament again and again and again. They come to God's people and they say, look, yeah, you're the people of God. Yeah, he loves you, but that entails a certain responsibility. You need to live like it, and instead you're kind of slipping into idolatry, you're imitating all the nations around you, and yet you think somehow this is going to protect you, this holy city. And it comes to a climax, actually. We, we've seen some of the, pro earlier this year, was it uh, Amos that we spent quite a bit of time uh, as John led us through? But it comes to a climax, these prophet, prophetic writings in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the end of the line. He was the last warning that God sent to his people before judgment fell on them. And in Jeremiah 7, he specifically addresses the issue of trusting in your identity because you belong to God, because you've got the temple here in Jerusalem. So Jeremiah says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You can just hear the priest saying this. Oh, don't worry, you don't have anything to worry about. 
Jerusalem can never fall because the temple of the Lord is here, so God will hedge it about. He would never allow his temple to be touched or let alone destroyed. Jeremiah said, don't you believe it? Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name so it's holy and say, we are safe. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. So yes, God loves his people but God also demands much of us as his people. And at the very least, what he demands is justice. A just and righteous society where care is given to the least and the lowest. Here's a second thing the psalm says about the city of God. He says it's all about glory. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. If you were here or listened last week, I I, I talked about how happiness is God's ultimate aim for us. He really does intend that we we will be happy, eternally happy someday. And to that now add the idea of glory, glory. One day you will shine If you are in Christ, you will shine with such glory as uh, would dazzle the world if they could see it today. This is a point that's made uh, in several different places in the New Testament. Uh, Peter, for example, in 1 Peter 1, uh, exclaims at the outset of his letter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance. Our name is on it. And it will never fade. And it will never uh, be defiled and it will never be lost. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in that magnificent prayer in chapter one where he prays uh, with language that becomes uh, almost impenetrable. It's so dense and powerful. Uh, uh, The essence of it is I pray that God would open your eyes so that you would see, you'd be able to see and know his glorious inheritance in the saints. We are God's glorious inheritance. It's not just our inheritance. We are his inheritance. And we will shine with his glory. Glorious things are spoken of you, O Zion. But here's the last thing. Psalmist says, and to me it's the most remarkable of all. Yeah, God loves us, glory's ahead, that's all wonderful. But listen to this. The psalm takes a turn that sounds curious at first, and and maybe you wonder, you know, what does this mean? (laughs) What's he talking about? 
Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born here, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. And he's talking about Israel's neighbors, many of whom were inveterate enemies of the people of Israel. So what is he saying? This, this is one of the most dramatic things in the whole Old Testament, really, in, in all the Bible. He's saying that the city is for everyone. And not only is it for everyone, everyone there belongs. See, they're all native-born. Whatever their nationality, whatever their ethnicity, they are native-born citizens of the city of God. No second class, no illegal aliens, no immigrants who are kind of on the outs. Uh-uh. Everyone in the city belongs to the city. And God's great purpose for his city is that people from every language and tongue and tribe and nation will be gathered one day in his presence to his praise. You know that great passage from Revelation 7? It's the vision John sees. A multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples. And they're all praising with palm branches in their hands, praising the Lamb. And, the one. and interestingly, if you look at that chapter, Revelation 7, just before this, John talks about 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. He's talking about the same exact population. That's symbolic again. Those 12 tribes of Israel and 12,000, that represents the fullness of the people of God. Every one of them, natural born citizens of his city. So what does it mean for us? I want to I end with that. By the way, this is not natural. If anything, if you need any proof that this is inspired, uh, this is God's word, uh, just look at this, because the natural inclination of everyone everywhere is to say those people, they're outsiders. That's the enemy. They don't belong to us. This is for us and our tribe and our, our population. In fact, Peter had trouble learning that story, didn't he? Remember Acts 10? where Peter's given a vision of the clean and unclean, and he said, look, don't call anything unclean that God has made. Don't, don't call it unclean. And go, go with these people and go talk to Cornelius, this Roman said. And Peter comes in, and the first thing he says is, wow, I see God is no respecter of persons. <laughs> How mind-blowing is that? All he had to do was read Psalm 87. It's a hard lesson to learn because we are naturally sort of tribal, <laughs> ingrown, us and our kind. And that's not how it is in God's city. So what does it mean? Um, I just want to make a couple of points, really. Uh, um, 
One is that we are citizens of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And now I'm quoting St. Augustine. In um, the year 410 AD, Augustine was 53 years old. He was the bishop of a small city in North Africa called Hippo Regius, pretty insignificant place. He had made a name for himself as a writer and theologian, but he was serving the church in this uh, little community. It's now in northeastern Algeria in North Africa. And refugees began to trickle into the area from Rome because in that year, Rome was sacked. The city of Rome was taken by uh, a, a Germanic tribe known as the Goths under their leader, uh, Alaric, and they sacked the city. First time it had happened in 800 years. And it shook the, Rome, the Roman world up. And so pagan Romans were saying, how could this disaster have happened? And their answer was, it's the Christians' fault because they've drawn so many people away from the worship of the ancient Roman gods. And the Roman gods are angry, so they've allowed this judgment to come on the city. Augustine decided he was going to respond to that accusation, and he did so by writing his major work. It took him 14 years. He finished it at age 73, uh, just before his own city fell to the barbarians, and he himself died. But he called it the city of God. And its central thesis, he, he kind of traced the whole of biblical history, the city of God... God's people, God's kingdom, God's church, us. That's eternal. This is what he, he wrote about it. If we ask whence the holy city arises, God founded it. If whence comes its wisdom, it receives light from God. If whence comes its bliss, it rejoices in God. It receives its being by subsisting in God, its enlightenment by beholding him, its joy from cleaving to him. It exists, it sees, it loves, it is strong with God's eternity, it shines with God's truth, it rejoices in God's goodness. See, the city of God is divine. The cities of man, nation, community, family, tribe, whatever, they're temporary. The city of God is spiritual. The cities of man are temporal. The city of God is secure. The cities of man are transitory. They rise and they fall. They blossom and flourish and fade away and are gone. But the city of God is forever. And here's what it means. We belong to both cities. You can't help but live in a city of man. You're born someplace. You have a country. You can immigrate and have a different country. That's okay. But it's still one of the cities of man. Maybe you love and worship your family or your extended community, whatever it is. It's a city of man. We belong to it. It's okay. You can love that. You can serve it. We're called to do that. But our ultimate allegiance is to the city of God. You can only have one ultimate. 
you know, the ultimate, the final, the supreme. I, I still remember uh, rather vividly in beginning Greek class at, uh, at Hope College, learning the meaning of the word penultimate. It's a great word, penultimate. P-E-N and then ultimate. Penultimate means second to the last. It's the way we, we had to learn it because we had to know when to accent which syllable. So uh, um, penultimate means you put the accent on the second to the last. But it, it has a broader application. Our allegiances and our loves here, though real, they got to be penultimate. <laughs> you can only have one ultimate. And for us, it's the city of God. And, and here's the second thing I think I, I want to say. If this is true, if that's what we're living for, then we're pilgrims here. We are uh, temporary in all our connections and allegiances. This is kind of how the book of Hebrews ends. This wonderful verse from Hebrews 13. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're marching to Zion, folks. We're marching to Zion. Like Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs, even though they were promised the land, they still were seeking a city. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And you know, um, if you live this way, people are going to think you're crazy. I just, just want to alert you to this. People are going to say, what? A city that is to come, something you can't see, a God you can't prove, a God who may not even be real, and you're giving up you know, all of this that you could be amassing and living for in order to... You're crazy. And, and my response to that, I guess I'd quote John Newton. Save your sense of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in the name. Fleeting are the world's vain pleasures, all its empty boasts and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O oh God, the eternal all, help me to know that all things are shadows, but you are substance. All things are quicksands, but you are mountain. All things are shifting, but you are anchor. All things are ignorance, but you are wisdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.